uh, let you all know. It's something she's not unfamiliar with. So, okay, I thought I'd start with a poem. Heard this recently, it's just beautiful. Kind of gets me in the, uh, in the mind. But this is from a Brit uh, named Jeffrey Hill from a book of poetry called Tenebrae. From my understanding, it's probably the, the most known poem from this book. But it's called Lacrime Amantis. What is there in my heart that you should sue so fiercely for its love? What kind of care brings you as though a stranger to my door through the long night and in the icy dew, seeking the heart that will not harbor you, that keeps itself religiously secure? At this dark solstice filled with frost and fire, your passion's ancient wounds must bleed anew. So many nights the angel of my house has fed such urgent comfort through a dream, whispered, Your Lord is coming, he is close, that I have drowsed half-faithful for a time and bathed in pure tones of promise and remorse. Tomorrow I shall wake and welcome him. So this morning, I uh, want to uh, claim the promise of Jesus in Acts 1 that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us uh, to be his witnesses. Our public gathering here is a visible expression of witness to our world that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is true. Or should at least be investigated by those around us. Jesus promised His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to empower us for not only proclamatory, but also visible witness to the veracity of His Godhead and His triumph over death. Maranatha. If anyone were to uh, take a cursory look at today's culture, it would be evident that we are in the midst of a struggle of what truth and falsity is. What is right? Who is right? Don't read or watch fake news. What is fake news? Whose news? Which history? Whose history? We have a culture of censorship and cancer culture. Why? Because what anyone has said, whether today or decades ago, isn't true and even destructive. Therefore, they're canceled. Echo chambers where we only hear what we want to hear. But we have to ask, whose echo chamber? What echo chamber? Is perception reality? Or reality perception? If you say something publicly, can you endure the response? If you don't say something, can you bear the cost? It doesn't matter what side you're on. We, are all, we all together seem to be immersed and meshed in this titanic struggle over who or what is right, over what 
or who is true. Would it surprise you to know that this struggle is not new? We should quickly lose any feelings of uniqueness of experience when looking at history in general and specifically this teaching from Jesus 2,000 years ago. At the time Jesus was saying these few sentences, there was a foreign occupier in Judea. There were three main schools of religious thought among the Judeans. And there were a myriad of opinions of how to deal with not just the Roman occupiers, but also one's neighbor. Jesus, as followers, had not only a tax collector, one in collusion with the occupier, but he also had a zealot, one who wanted to kill the occupier. He had those as followers. Imagine that today. How many people can say they have those kinds of followers? In Luke 10, there is this account where a lawyer comes. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This struggle between what is right, who is right, What is wrong and who is wrong is not new. The difference is only as old as dirt. (laughs) It's been around since the beginning of time. And here we have a great example to address this struggle between truth and falsity, with Jesus here talking about false prophets. Now, if you look at your Bibles, you you may see title lines for various sections that give a summary of what that passage is about. It appears uh, through pretty much all the translations, though a few don't have them. And I think a majority of the title lines mark these verses of Matthew 7, uh, 15 through 20 as a tree and its fruit, or something similar. Now, this passage recounts the famous lines of, you will know a tree by its fruit. But this passage in Matthew has a context for the example of a tree and its fruit, and that is of the false prophet. There is a parallel account of these lines in Luke 6 where there is no mention of the false prophets, only that about, it only talks about a tree and its fruit. Now, this isn't an apparent contradiction at all. If you're a believer in the idea that things recounted in the four Gospels were not one time deals, as in Jesus only taught them once and never again, then these two passages being potentially contradictory would have a little more merit. But I don't think that's true. I think one of the reasons the writers of the, and, or the investigators, Luke was an investigator, of the Gospels were able to write the things they did is because the topics Jesus taught were most likely taught over and over again. I think it is viable and reasonable to conclude that Jesus taught about a tree and its fruit multiple times, and that Matthew remembered one of the times Jesus taught it while also talking about false prophets, and Luke wrote it his account based on the memories and perhaps of multiple disciples or followers of Jesus when Jesus taught it. So, 
there is no apparent contradiction here, merely complementary. But this morning we're focusing on Matthew's account of the tree and its fruit. And in his account, Jesus makes a hard connection, warning about false prophets. What was helpful to me about this section of Matthew was one commentator saying Jesus was making a connection with four different scenes or examples here in chapter 7. What Jesus was probably doing was illustrating contrast of the golden rule that he talked about in verse 12. Buzzy preached about that one last week. So after he lets... Uh, shares the line of the golden rule, he then gives four examples of contrasts of the golden rule. The first contrast was between the wide and the narrow way. The second is this one about false prophets and good and bad fruit. The third section is about those who are known and not known by Jesus. And the last scene in verses 24 through 27, he talks about being wise or foolish about being building on rock or sand. So you have four contrasts. But this morning, we're addressing the contrast of good and bad fruit and the false prophet. There are two things I want to address from this passage that seem very evident. The primary thing, I believe, is that being addressed here is about false prophets. And the secondary, but no less important thing, is a tree's fruit. So let's take the false prophet. In verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. When Jesus used this phrase, beware of false prophets, what, was the, what were the immediate thoughts that came to the minds of his followers? What did they hear? As opposed to what do we hear today when we hear it? There is a difference. Prophets were not unfamiliar back in the day of Jesus. The history of the Jews in Israel was full of stories of prophets. There's a whole se- there are whole sections of Jewish scripture. There was there's a whole section of Jewish scripture that's called the Book of the Prophets, which today we Christians call the Major and Minor Prophets. Genuinely, people uh, like Samuel, Elijah, and Jer- uh, Jeremiah were some of the big named prophets in the history of Israel. At the time of Christ, John the Baptist was called a prophet, and even Jesus called him the Elijah who is to come. There were also false prophets written about in the Jewish scriptures. Over and over again, you see sections about such individuals and groups of individuals. There were individual prophets, but then there were packs of prophets as well. Our scripture reading today includes such a passage in Ezekiel. Usually, it was the false prophets against whom the true prophets would write. So I'm sure when the followers of Jesus heard this phraseology, beware of false prophets, from Jesus' mouth, it did not sound foreign in their ears. But what exactly was a prophet? What has helped me understand what a prophet was in the Old Testament is to think about it in the context of the three offices that were present in the history of Israel. Those offices were prophet, priest, and king. There was a, a, a role of prophet, there was a role of priest, and a role of king. Now, there's a lot more that I could talk about and we could go into regarding what a prophet was 
and even is today. But that's time. But for time's sake, I think wrapping your mind around this example using the three offices would help. These three offices were three leadership roles in Israel, and each one symbolized a certain aspect of this leadership. The king. The king was the authority in Israel, the one who ruled, who pronounced judgment or law. You could say the king showed what the law was and enforced it. The priest was the mediator between Israel and God. The priest was the one who took the sacrifice into the holy place, into the very holy holies, into the presence of God. So you could say the priest made made people right with the law. The priest realigned people to the law. The king showed what the law was and enforced it. The priest realigned to the law. But what of the prophet? The prophet was the mouthpiece of God in the Old Testament. A prophet was one who pronounced when Israel was off track with the law. This is why they were not much liked in the Old Testament. And how they were treated is evident in the Old Testament. So the king showed the law. The priest realigned to the law. The prophet showed where misalignment to the law happened. That's just a simple way of looking at it. Showed the law, realigned to the law, showed where you were out of alignment. I was thinking about this, and it brought to mind the passage, I think it's in 2 Timothy, where Paul talks about the Word of God is reasonable for uh, teaching, training, what are the, uh, correction, and training, works. Training, yeah, so there are four things. If you think about the offices, thanks, Brett, the roles of the offices in Israel, they align to the Word of God. Because those four things talked about in 2 Timothy reference that. So this is a good way to look at what a prophet is and was probably something the followers of Jesus might have had in mind when the idea of prophet was talked about. See, we need to get into the mind of what they heard. I mean, we're several thousand years later. We've got all kinds of teaching and and generations between us. I want to know what they were hearing in that day. So they were probably thinking of people like Elijah and Samuel. But they were also probably thinking about prophets whose names we know no longer because they were false prophets in the day. So what is a false prophet? As I mentioned earlier, the presence of false prophets was always present in the history of Israel, even in the day of Jesus. So what was the evidence of a false prophet? Before I get into that, how Jesus answers that passage, I want to mention how one was revealed in the Old Testament, a false prophet. One of the taglines or statements used by prophets in old Israel to reveal their legitimacy was using the phrase, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord, or something similar. There are variations to that. You were, in essence, by using that phrase, saying, I speak words, the words of God. Saying this phrase got you attention. It meant people would listen to you. 
Because people would want to know what God thinks about their day or what they're doing. God, they want to know what's going to happen. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Now, if you were someone who was a prophet called by God, who actually had God speak into your ear or appear to you in some dream or vision and say, go and say this to the king, that was a fearful thing. Because you had to obey or God would find someone else and you would have to live with those consequences. It was a fearful thing because it usually meant going to the king and saying something bad was going to happen. Imagine Nathan having to have to go confront David. You, David, are an adulterer and a murderer. (laughs) God's saying to me, go say that to the president. Or go say that to the emperor of Persia back in the day. Yeah, right. It was a fearful thing because you were going to go say something bad to the king. And saying things to a king about how bad his future is going to be usually caused the king to do bad things to the prophets. (laughs) There's an account in the Old Testament of the northern king of Israel, Ahab, uh, calling his... uh, cousin, sister, brother, kingdom, King Jehoshaphat of Judah up because he wants to go after Syria. He wants help. So he calls Jehoshaphat up and Jehoshaphat being a more godly king says we should consult God. Where are the prophets? So Ahab marches in his prophets and he has dozens come and say you will be victorious over Syria. You can go battle them. And Jehoshaphat's kind of going... I'm not getting the right feeling about these guys. Is there a real is there a real prophet of God? And Ahab goes, uh, there's this guy named Micaiah, but I don't want to talk to him. He always says bad things. <laughs> that was what a prophet did. Well, they called Micaiah, and Micaiah said exactly the opposite of what these dozens are. Anyway, you can read about it and I think it's in Kings. Yeah, it is in Kings. So this is why if you went around. But So that was one thing. If you actually heard from God, go say this to the king, or you need to pronounce this, that is a fearful thing. But if you were someone who went around pronouncing judgments and thoughts and saying, this is what God has said to me, and you were not, in fact, hearing from those things from God, that is an entirely different matter. This is why I included the Ezekiel reading in today's readings. It gives ample evidence of what happens when someone did this, did the latter, actually didn't hear from God, but is saying they heard from God. I mean, look at the phrases used in Ezekiel 13. He says, woe, God says, woe to the foolish prophet who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. He says, your prophets have been like jackals among ruins. I think in Sarah's reading, it says foxes. This is like, you're like jackals. God calls them foolish and jackals says, they have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their words. So they're saying something, expecting God to fulfill it. And God says, have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. And then he says, because you have uttered falsehood, and seeing lying visions, therefore behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it's one thing to tick off a king. 
an earthly king, it is quite another to tick off the king of kings. So what does Jesus say in evidence for a false, uh, is evidence for a false prophet? And that brings us into this section of a tree and its fruit. First, in verse 12, Jesus says a false prophet is like a wolf in sheep's clothing. I want to comment on that one later, so let's go on to the fruit here. I will say something about that. What Jesus states here as evidence of a false prophet is the simple observation of fruiting trees. What kind of fruit is being born by the tree? Is it accurate to the tree? Is, is it good fruit off a good tree? So there are two characteristics here Jesus mentions. Whether the fruit is from the tr- whether the fruit from the tree is the right kind of fruit or whether the fruit is off a healthy or diseased tree producing good or bad fruit. First in verse 16 he says, "You will recognize them by their fruit." And then he asks the question, "Do grapes come from thorn bushes? Do figs come from thistles?" If Jesus were to say that in 21st century South Carolina, he might say something like, "Do peaches come from kudzu?" Can a fig come from wisteria? Of course they don't. I mean, if we were walking along and we saw a peach on a kudzu vine and we picked it, I I think we'd have to start suspecting something is wrong. Second, Jesus says there are healthy and diseased trees, and a diseased tree does not bear healthy fruit. Only healthy trees bear healthy fruit. So what is healthy here? Because at this point, we have to ask what Jesus means by good and bad fruit. And since we are towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's quite a bit of evidence of what characteristics are healthy. We're at the end. Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7. We're at the end here. So when you ask, what is healthy fruit? You need only look at the previous chapters. In these chapters, Jesus has talked about being salt and light. He's talked about anger and lust and divorce, oath, retaliations, loving enemies, giving to the needy, a devotional prayer life. He's talked about fasting and storing up treasure in heaven. He's talked about worrying, misjudging others, and doing unto others as they would do to you. That's a pretty good list of characteristics or fruit that a prophet should exhibit. The Apostle Paul picks up on this and lays it out succinctly in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. All of these things Paul lists in Galatians are woven through and actually expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. Look it up. Take Galatians 5 that list, and as you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, you can see all those characteristics in the Sermon on the Mount. Something we need to be aware of about what fruit is, is that we may, and that we may have a difficult time with our modern age uh, in dealing with, is chronology. In an age where we can know instantly what is happening around the world, or travel to such places in a matter of hours, It can affect how patient we can be with cultivating fruit. I call it the popcorn culture. Throw a bag in and three minutes later you got a bag of buttered popcorn. I mean, we we get our stuff instantly. Let me ask this question as an illustration. 
how many fruit trees or bushes exist where we could plant them right here on the Olson farm here this morning and pick fruit from them the very next day? How many fruit trees? Are there, Charcam, are there any fruit trees or bushy fruit bushes that... No. If you buy it from the store and it already has fruit on it. Well, that, possibly. That took several years to get that. <laughs> yes. It took a while. It takes a while for a fruit tree to fruit. Ask them about their wine or their grapevines here. How long have they been around? They've got some down there that are still small that won't bear any fruit for quite a while. Ask us about our pecan trees. Okay. I got to keep going, Pogo. Thanks. <laughs> Any fruit from a tree takes time, doesn't it? Now, in the spiritual realm, fruit production is driven and produced by God. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 9, Paul wrote about factions in the church. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So God is the one who makes things grow. He is the one to make fruit emerge. And on his end and by his hand, he can make a tree fruit the very next day. He can. You look at an account where Jesus actually curses a fig tree and the very next day, the fig tree was dead. Now he could do the opposite because he causes the growth. He holds the very molecules of that fruit tree together. So do you think he couldn't like we could plant one here and God couldn't cause that thing to be a fruited bush or a fruited tree the very next day. He could if he wanted to. But just as my uh, seminary professor would say, God certainly works in the extraordinary. That's why they're called miracles. But he, wa- he works a lot more in the ordinary. And the ordinary takes time. So to see fruit from a false prophet or a good prophet might take time. And we need to be patient with that. So at the same time, there is a lesson in the natural rhythms of biology that proceed from their allotted times, and God works that way too. So fruit is something in our observation as human beings under God in community that we may need to observe over time. I say those three things purposefully. We need to observe under God and in community to see someone's fruit. Because it's not just my thoughts on someone's fruit, but it's our thoughts. This is why I've said to you over and over again, we need you, Buzzy, Brett, Fred, and I, to be reading these passages along with us that we're teaching from. Because I don't want to tell you anything false. (laughs) If you have questions, ask me. Ask Brett. Ask Buzzy. Ask Fred. They would be glad. Fred's very mean. Don't. You know, no, he's not. No, ask us if you have questions because we need to be held accountable. You guys need to see the fruit from our tree of whether we are, in fact, good or false prophets. So this is a good point to lead into the comment about a wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus mentions this in verse 15. This is where we get that phrase, a wolf in sheep's clothing. This image Jesus uses here is a very severe one. We've got to get used to severe language, even from the mouth of Jesus, who did the most loving act in the world. There are hard things that he says. This is a hard one. 
we should not take it lightly. He is saying that there will be people in the church who will be like ravenous predators among innocent prey. At least that is the way Jesus described what a false prophet is. Now, someone who is a leader or a teacher, or even just a common congregant in the church, and who says and does the right things, but in reality their hearts are deceptive, is not something easy to discover. It is something that can take time. Fruit, Good fruit shows its mettle over a period of time. Not always in moments, though with God, immediate fruitfulness is certainly possible. This is why we have to be in community, patient and completely reliant on the Holy Spirit. God is in this for the long game. And ravenous wolves eventually find the long game intolerable. So let us keep vigilant. So I was thinking about this. Someone who is actually knows what they're saying isn't, they don't believe it's true, but trying to say it to get us and anyone following Jesus to like them is, is a devil. They're a liar. Someone who's saying false things and they don't think they are and don't know that they are is a very different thing. That is someone we can at least work with. That is someone we can at least connect with over over time and in community and we're we're experiencing that now with the church with all this thing all this stuff about critical race theory and such there are people out there they are being deceptive like the false prophets on either side i'm not accusing either side or only one side let me say it that way but there are people out there who would genuinely believe some of this is true but it's still a false teaching. Those people are, you can work with that. God has grace in that. God doesn't have as much grace with the individuals that actually know that they're lying and they're trying to undermine his church. God, be merciful to them. And that's why I need you and we who teach from up front need you to hold us accountable, to make sure that we're not saying things unknowingly. Practical applications. What can we learn from the two points? Well, a couple of things. We can cultivate our, the fruit in ourselves and our brothers and sisters, and we can remember that Jesus is the true prophet and the source of all fruitfulness. First, we can cultivate fruit in ourselves and our brothers and sisters. By so doing, we create an iron environment in and around ourselves that helps healthy fruit to thrive and diseased fruit to be revealed and discarded. Are you cultivating intimate relationships with Jesus? You do this by creating intimate spiritual relationships with your brothers and sisters here. That is visibly expressed through consistent gathering, both on and outside of the Sabbath. It is expressed in personal meditations and reflections and study of his word on your own and with others in your church community. It is visibly expressed through acts of kindness, both within and without the church community. These are just a few ways. There's a lot more on this list that we could all put, but all these things are like trying to grow a healthy garden. If you cultivate good soil, wisely plant complementary plants that mutually assist growth and vigilantly monitor for, for destructive outside forces, you can minimize the impact of foreign pests and diseases and even drive them out. 
When you cultivate it individually and in a group, you create an environment where disease has a harder time thriving. How connected are you to others in this church? How close are you to your brothers and sisters here? How often do you break open the the Bible over a meal or something together? How often do you break it open with others? This isn't always easy as we all are all in the sanctification process where intentional and unintentional transgression and hurt will occur. We are not perfect individuals. We are on a pilgrimage. So we will step on toes, offend, and even hurt. But if this fruit we are cultivating, uh, but as we do cultivation of this fruit, we need to join God in the long game and be patient and unrelenting in his spirit. Second, renew your mind with this thought. Jesus is the truest prophet and he is the source of all fruitfulness. The reason we can deal with false prophets is because in the gospel he has freed us from their power. At the end of Deuteronomy 18, God is speaking to Moses about false prophets and how they are revealed. And the last phrase he uses in that section says, You need not be afraid of him, the false prophet. Because God was with Moses and Israel, they did not need to fear false prophets. Jesus is the truest prophet because he fulfills perfectly the office of prophet. The one I spoke of in my first point. In fact, Jesus perfectly fulfills all three of the offices. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is the prophet in that he has said he is coming again. And will that prophecy go unfulfilled? He is the true priest in the order of Melchizedek, as the writer of Hebrews said. He not only took the sacrifice to God, he was the sacrifice that opened the Holy of Holies to all of us that we may see him face to face. And finally, he is the king of kings in whom all dominion and power resides. If all of this is true, why should we fear false prophets? And finally, he is the source of all fruitfulness. He said in the Gospel, John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. He might have been referencing also false prophets there. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. How can he say that unless he is the source of of all life, and therefore the source of all fruitfulness. How did he secure this? By rising from the dead. John 11 says, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. By the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, we are given the fruitfulness of the Spirit sent to us by him. This is no small thing. This is everything. I ask, do you know this? And I invite you to consider it. Together, let us pray to God to deepen our connection to him and to each other so that the master of the vineyard may grow fruit in and through us. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for 
even in the midst of saying hard things and warning us against trouble or troublesome people that you still extend the hand of love as exampled in the ultimate sacrifice you um, you performed you did you walked you lived it you lived you died and you rose again even to offer the hand to the false prophet in some way so Lord we, we pray that you would continue to work in us individually and as a community to uh Grow the good fruit. Grow the fruit of uh, a healthy tree so that uh, we may see it flourish in your kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth. Pray this all in your name. Amen.